Welcome to Building Conversations, a construction podcast powered by the STO Building Group. I'm Rob Leon. I've spent the last 30 years of my career in the construction industry, and today I'll be your host. On this episode, we're talking about one of construction's hot topics, building repositioning. Here with us today is Vice President of Paverini McGovern and fellow native New Yorker, Jason Vesuvio. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? So we've known each other for, for many years. Uh, we've worked in different offices together. Mm-hmm. You've been in and out of Structure Tone. Um, tell us a little about your career and uh, and your current role here at Paverine McGovern. Sure. Actually, I started at the Structure Tone organization 20 years ago this year out in the New Jersey office. We were in Lyndhurst at that time where you and I ended up crossing paths a couple years later. I uh, spent some time at Paverini McGovern, our business unit Paverini McGovern, which is our core and shell business unit. Um, we mostly build the new stuff, and as we'll get into, reposition some buildings as well. Um, spent uh, seven years there, left for a little while, and then came back about uh, three years ago. My current role is Vice President of Business Development. In the role, I also oversee marketing on a broad level, and also our uh, virtual design and construction team. You know, most of my experience has really been on the side of the business of business development and marketing. You know, really the kind of the behind the scenes or the client-facing stuff not so much on the delivery. Although I did spend a couple of a couple of moments, I'll call it, in my career um, as a project admin, uh, project manager, and even account executive later on in my career. So I have a little insight into that side of the business as well. But mostly it's been on, on the marketing and BD side. So we'll backtrack a little bit. So what did you do in college? Like what, were you, what did you think you would do? Right. Uh, <laughs> and how did you end up in construction? Well, uh, I can't really remember back that far. Um, I actually uh, I majored in English literature, so I, I always liked to read and write, basically, which ended up lending itself very well to being in marketing and business development because it's about different forms of communication. And although I minored in history and probably should have minored in marketing, I did have enough of an interest where you know I had, I had part of my brain there trained on that sort of thing, and I didn't really know what that meant. Um, so I spent a little bit of time actually in an eyewear company doing some uh, marketing type stuff on the merchandising side. So I wet my whistle a little bit and um, through a recruiter I had an opportunity to interview with Structure Tone and really find out what the, you know, the, I'll call it the white collar construction world is all about. And it really opened my eyes and my first boss at Structure Tone was amazing. She taught me to read blueprints because that's what we called them, within the first couple of months so that I could write descriptions. And that really hooked me in because now I w- it was a real challenge because it was something that I didn't really understand and I needed to use you know, this ability that I had cultivated over yeah, right. a few years as a kid and now use that to help this company win work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of a huge responsibility for, you know, for a young person. And you could say that I never really looked back. Right, so, right. That's great. That's great. So, you know, we're here to talk about uh, building repositioning. How would you define building repositioning and, and what qualifies a project as building repositioning project? I mean, I think some of this is really subjective. In my mind, it's something old becoming something new. And some of those, some of those examples are very dramatic. You can turn an industrial building, light manufacturing, into residential. Right. You can turn an old office building into a hotel. You can turn um, an old warehouse building into a lab. Those are examples of actual projects that our organization, whether it be Structure Tone or Paverini McGovern, 
doing right now or have done recently. Those are easy. Some of those that I would categorize as building repositioning, we would talk about in years past as gut reno, mm-hmm. adaptive reuse, and I think it's all under the same family. But when I think you reposition a, an office building, it's more than remaking the lobby. It's really about turning maybe a class B or C into a class A, because that means more. A lobby would be part of it. You know, um, reskinning a building, that's part of it. Right. Um, to the extent that you can, maybe you uh, redevelop the core. Maybe you're even ripping out mechanical systems. You know, those dramatic things coupled together to turn a, a B into an A or an affordable residential building into a market rate luxury. That right. that kind of thing falls into the same category. So it's kind of like well. taking uh, from a from a developer's point of view, building owner's point, of view, taking you know the building and saying I need to attract new different types of tenants. Right. right? You know, the, the law firms are, they're whatever, they're, they're growing, they're leaving, you know, they, they're just looking for different space, but we want to take this building uh, and make it more attractive to a different type of organization, different type of company to, to get them in. Different tenants, different yeah. um, inhabitants, different guests if it's a hotel. But I, I do think that there's, there's something going on as well, and I don't know if it's deliberate, but you can, you can kind of see it happening, and I, I think you can hear it in conversation with, um, from client to client, and that's really about authenticity. I think it's a generational thing, uh, for sure, and I think that's one of the things that the the younger generation of millennials are kind of pushing us toward. You know, that old and new together has to be more than just, pardon the expression, just a facade. It's got to be authentic. So, you know, having um, something new pop out of something old, like we're doing at 441 Ninth Avenue at uh, the corner of West 34th Street, that's a great example of a project like that. You know, we're, we've got an existing uh, podium, we've gutted that, we've put in a new core, and then a new tower above. And that project has a certain amount of authenticity to it because within the podium, you get this feeling that you're in a building that's decades old. Right, right. But with the expanded window program, there are, there are better views you have column spacing that no one really designed a building that way today. So you feel like you're in something that's real right. in a sense, but you're surrounded by whether it be technology or um, better views, you're, you're surrounded by something new and it's that combination. No, absolutely, I, and I think that um, <clears throat> you know, we've seen this over, over the years, uh, you talk about authenticity, you know, that people call it the, the Chelsea look, right? You want to keep concrete floors with all of the nooks and crannies and, right. Right, you know, and keeping the brick walls and possibly exposed ceilings, you know, chop the concrete out of beams and paint the beams. They want to see that. But they also do want the modern part of it, whether it is technology, whether it is the, the floor layout, whether it is the, uh, the views, right? You know, there, there's something old and something new always being offered in these projects. But I think it's also about technology clients for the you know for our clients for the developers uh, for the landlords you know that these are the types of buildings that folks in the technology world are really looking for you know again they want modern amenities and they want modernism from a technology standpoint and i think there's something that's kind of cool a juxtaposition of a modern technology company that also wants something that's authentic that's something that's old something that had been there for you know generations or or decades before and then i also think that flexibility is a big part of that Uh, one of our office clients likes to say that a smart building is a flexible building not necessarily talking about the repositioning of a repositioning Mm -hmm. you know decades down but you know as things uh change and the and the the new facility matures the ability to 
change and adapt and be flexible without doing a, another major overhaul. Sure. That, I think, is, is also another theme that's kind of built into building repositioning is, is the flexibility of the spaces, the flexibility of the systems. Right. And I think that has to you know, come into play to the financial model, too, right? Because if you're saying, you know, hypothetically, you have a building that's 300 to 500,000 square feet, and you're going to take out certain floors, you take out a certain amount of square footage to provide common amenity space, and also think that, well, I might have that mix of sole tenant space with common uh, amenity space change possibly. You know, the model of internally of saying, well, you know, what am I gonna, what's my lease going to be like with that tenant, right? It's not just tied to the square foot footage that they're renting. It's got to be square footage that they're renting plus whatever amenity common space that they're using. And is it, uh, is it built into the rent? Is it, a, is it a usage fee? So it gets a real interesting thing that the landscape of many different things are going to change mm -hmm. because of the design, construction, repositioning of physically the building. Other things have to follow as well. That's a great point. Let me ask you, how important do you think you know, the neighborhood plays? Like, do you think it's easy to just say, well, I'm going to take this one building in the middle of wherever it is, you know, and the neighborhood is not being repositioned? How important do you think that the neighborhood is in that whole repositioning process to attract the right tenants? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Usually, by the time you know, we're involved, someone has already answered those questions. Oh, you know, whether it's been through rezoning, opportunity zones, or the next big thing. You know, there, there are folks that are looking at that pipeline, so to speak, much earlier. But I definitely think neighborhood plays into it. Some of it, though, is kind of a, before you reposition, it's a reimagination. You know, what do we want East Harlem to be? Mm -hmm. Whoever those people are that are the, you know, sort of the um, caretakers, purveyors of East Harlem, for instance, which might be, you know, the next neighborhood or, um, you know, the next Bushwick, if you're talking, or sure. Long Island City, if you're, if you're talking about the boroughs. There are people who almost anoint that. But there are reasons that they do. You know, you here in New York or any urban environment, you're probably ticking off a number of factors like connectivity to the subway and or multiple subways and, and you know, a few other things like that. But I, I do think that one of the things that's interesting, especially about 441 9th being repositioned where it is, is that, you know, Hell's Kitchen had a completely different life years ago. And it, it's really what's happening with Brookfield at Manhattan West and related at Hudson Yards mm -hmm. that are kind of driving the repositioning that way. So in a sense, that's kind of it's kind of a unique creation. We're going to make a neighborhood where exactly. there wasn't one. We're going to build a neighborhood over some tracks, and then that ended up driving repositioning projects. So I think location obviously is very important. I think it shakes out you know yeah. a number of different ways. No, I agree. I think I don't know you know if, if Hudson Terrace would be happening if Hudson Yards wasn't there, right? And maybe even this building that we're in now, you know. That's true. You don't know. And sure, there's, you know, this location is great because it's, uh, it's right by Penn Station, it's near Port Authority, so there's other reasons. But a huge driving force has to be the Hudson Yards development. Well, that's what's happening there. So where would you say that the, uh, the next hot neighborhood is? You mentioned East Harlem. Uh, we've talked about Third Avenue, that corridor. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the building of the Second Avenue subway. What's your take on where you think the next... Uh, I mean, the big one to shake out right now is Midtown East. You know, it's going to take a long time. I mean, it's probably, you know, a 15 to 20 year thing. You know, and then, of course, we're going to go through, you know, various economic cycles, and that's going to 
play into it, but you're already seeing the results of that rezoning with one Vanderbilt and some of the other big projects that they're going to plan. And repositioning is always a, a part of that. In fact, one uh, client of the organization's RXR, you know, I think saw the writing on the wall early uh, at 237 Park and started to do some of their own. I don't know if it's a full repositioning, but they, they definitely did some major upgrades there, um, you know, planning for that. A lot of competition coming. Yeah. So I think that's really the, the big one. One of the neighborhoods we're starting to see transform over in the boroughs is Greenpoint. Right. I mean, there's a tremendous amount, probably a dozen or so buildings, maybe 13 buildings that are going to go right along the East River. Right. And the developer there is maybe, you know, 30, 40% in. Right. Um, with a couple more projects planned to go on the ground this year. And, you know, that's all new construction, but that's really changing the neighborhood and probably going to start driving repositioning uh, yeah. to the east. And it's interesting. So, you know, we are seeing this in other cities as well, right? Mm-hmm. It used to be that you had to be on the island of Manhattan and between certain uh, streets below 59th Street, you know, okay. 23rd Street or whatever, <clears throat> and then in a quarter. That's where you had to be. But we are seeing businesses go to the uh, outer boroughs because that's where people can't afford to live. We see it in Austin, Texas, that it's not only Austin itself, but north of Austin is being developed. We see it uh, in Chicago, right? Stretching outside of uh, downtown Chicago. See it in London across the river Mm -hmm. uh, by um, sea containers in that neighborhood. It's pretty amazing. Um, You know, you look at the age of a lot of the buildings and the infrastructure that we have here in New York City, and you wonder, how long do we have to, to stay on top? And what do we have to do, right, to, to maintain that? Mm-hmm. Because we are building so much. I mean, it's just amazing of you know, what could have happened, let's say, with Amazon, right, in Long Island City. Mm-hmm. Whether it's you're pro or, or against, you know, what you probably couldn't ignore is the fact that there would have to be so much infrastructure built in and around that area to support that. And that drives a lot of the public works that I think we need. Yeah. But it's interesting about, like, where the powerhouse companies are looking. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been a no-brainer. You the know? talent pool here is, I mean, you know, you know, it's like when you live and work and you're from New York or the area, you yeah. always think of, you know, New York is the greatest city. Sure. Um, but, you know, top three talent pool in the world, right? I mean, uh, it, it, to use your expression, it is a no-brainer that companies would want to come here, especially technology companies. You know, this city, while there's certainly an affordability question, um, people still want to come here. They want to make their mark. Uh, they want to uh, be a part of what's happening, you know, outside of work. But they want the whole experience here, right. and that's really important for for companies. The, we're lucky in that sense as a city that folks like Amazon, and then it can really only trickle down from there. You know, the Googles, Apples of the world sure. are all in that same pot. Want to come to us? Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about checking all the boxes, right? Without so it's doubt. not just for. A, a developer thinking about where to put a building, mm-hmm. but people and where they want to live. People want to live in a city, right? The things that we have to work on are modernization, and that leads to that whole building repositioning piece mm-hmm. of how that ties in. Uh, so I'm excited because, you know, again, native New Yorker, uh, I'd love to see our city go through all the changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of, the, one of the exciting projects that you and I have talked about is TSX Broadway, which is the repositioning of that location uh, with the Palace Theater. I'd like you to talk about that because to me, this is one of the most interesting plays on what a developer is doing because it's got retail, it's got culture, it's got a, a theater, uh, and it's got a hotel, I believe, correct? Mm-hmm. So walk us through that process. Sure. 
This is one of my favorites. I mean, it just absolutely blows my mind. One of my favorite things about it, too, I should say, is that while it's, you know, you call it a Paverini McGovern project, which it is, it's actually a pretty awesome collaboration between Paverini McGovern here in New York and Structure Tone New York. There are some specialty things in here, whether it be the hotel interiors and the eventual restoration of the Palace Theater, where PMG as a business unit really leaned on our sister company, Structure Tone. So the project itself has a lot of moving parts, and I, I mean that um, literally and figuratively. Um, so it, it's really kind of the mother of all repositioning projects, as far as, as examples go. So it's in the middle of Times Square, and what's, what's really interesting about the entire facility is that there's no retail. There's a subway entrance at the podium, and there's a branch bank, right. and that's it. And, you know, as New Yorkers, we tend to avoid Times Square at all costs. But um, most people that are visiting well, New now York... now we do. I mean, we used to go yeah. as kids, right? We, 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 we My parents never let us go there. <laughs> you can get anything there. Yeah, we usually walked around No, you can't get anything there. <laughs> You're not allowed there. Except the stuff, like, you know, Minion Doll. Right, exactly. And uh, bubble gum shrimp over there. <laughs> so all of that stuff, whether it be the you know the restaurants, the retail, and then the experience of the LED signage and all that advertising, which has a history that goes back decades. I mean, if you can look back at photos from the 1930s and 40s, and you see you still see those billboards, right, you know. So that 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 isn't necessarily new. But what Times Square is today is a total reimagination that began with the Giuliani administration. What this building doesn't do is take advantage of that foot traffic. Mm. People are staying in the hotel, and then they're coming out, and they're leaving. Now, the one beautiful thing, the crown jewel of the entire building is the Palace Theater. It's a landmark theater. SpongeBob was just there. Oh, I missed it. I know, man. <laughs> Missed Gideon. opportunities. Funny enough, I heard Gideon. I know. Everybody said it was fantastic. Um, so the Palace Theater is definitely a place where folks would go to see uh, and will continue to go to see uh, shows. But again, there's no retail. There's no reason for people to really right. stay. They're coming and then going, right? So our client decided they need retail. So this, I'll call it a $2 billion real estate program, is all being driven by approximately... 50,000 square feet of new retail. So how are we doing that? Uh, we're gonna create retail at the ground level and we're gonna excavate two levels down. So where the existing Palace Theater is now. Exactly, right. now, the big problem there is there's a theater in our way, a landmark theater in our way. So what we need to do is we need to lift that theater up, physically lift it up with hydraulic jacks, 31 feet in the air. But before we do that, there's a 47-story hotel above the podium. So we need to take that down. We're going to take that down, controlled demolition, all the way down to the podium. And then we're going to create a cavity within the podium by, and I'll, I'll oversimplify this, yeah. flipping up some trusses, kind of removing structure that's there and creating a space in order to jack the theater up. So does that hotel, that is hotel, that actually sits on the roof, technically the roof of the Palace Theater? So to speak. I mean, it has its own independent structure. Understood, man. But, but there is nothing between the Palace Theater and the hotel. More or less, right. yeah, That's more or less, yeah, more or less. Um, and then we'll rebuild that tower and then restore the theater. Now, this is all happening because of there are certain zoning laws in New York that allow an entity to remove 75% of their asset. And if they keep 25%, they can build back as of right. No change of use, same height, uh, no FAR restrictions, same square footage. So what the client will get is a, mo a much more modern hotel 
uh, with better layouts, um, and they get to start from scratch when it comes to you know uh, rooms. Right. And then we'll uh, we'll white box the, the the retail at and below grade. So it's it's almost a four year program. That's incredible. And so you think about like the creation of retail space when all we hear about is you know retail is dead. You know the physical. Uh, it's really spaces. not. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah it, right. It's crazy. So. Like you were saying, you know, Times Square is a destination for many different things. Shopping, physically shopping, and be able to like walk out with something instead of having it delivered is kind of going to be a novelty that people want to go do, and there's going to be specific destinations. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a gamble. I think it's a good gamble on the on the developer's part because they can change that to whatever they want. If retail goes towards a virtual experience that you go in, you, you know, you see a few products, but anything's going to be ordered and delivered, right. you're fine. That's okay. That's okay. That'll still be there. Yeah. I think it's really incredible, and I think it, it does add another dimension to the neighborhood. It actually puts more visibility to the theater, which is interesting. It does. Because you know, all the theaters are just, you know, you walk by and you don't even know you're there except that you're walking around the crowds or mm -hmm. going there. But it puts more visibility to the theater. I think that'll be interesting to see how that plays. So just we started off the conversation really trying to say what or how do you define building repositioning? So. Um, why don't you tell us about some of the other projects that we're doing, how that fits into you know that definition of repositioning, and some of the challenges that you're experiencing on those projects? Sure. I mean, you know, the, my favorite projects are the ones that keep something existing and put something new on top or within. One of the uh, projects that we're doing on the residential side of the business is at 100 Van Dam, which is uh, on the west side, Greenwich, kind of in the Tribeca neighborhood. There's an existing six or seven story brick building. It wasn't landmarked, but I mean, it was old. In fact, it had a timber structure on the inside. Um, and what our client wanted to do there was keep three of the four walls and bring something, a new structure out of it. So it's a little different than 441 9th, which I'll, I'll get into again, uh, in the sense that we put something on top of something new. This was, we put something within something old. And one of the things that we needed to do when we completely gutted that building to keep the brick facade, basically, was we kind of built a mini Golden Gate Bridge around that. <laughs> There's a lot of steel holding that up and a lot of actually wood in the, uh, in the window openings themselves. Right. So we put concrete footings in the sidewalk, I think maybe four to six of them around that building. And then there's just a ton of steel holding it up while we excavated and then built a new superstructure until we could tie the, the brick together. So that's an enormous challenge. You don't get to start with a clean canvas. Sure. You still need to excavate, you still need to do a foundation, you still need to do superstructure, but you've got these three delicate walls and a lot of steel on the outside right. you know, to contend with. Yeah, and obviously the, one of the biggest challenges of working in New York City is the, is the footprint. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not relegated to much further outside of the footprint of the actual space you're building. Yeah, we've been lucky recently because uh, um, there's a neighboring project happening on the address is, is Hudson, but we've got the back of their building abutting, and luckily uh, the CM there is very helpful. The CM doing the work, uh, also structured on New York, so great. It's a much easier <laughs> coordination process. Um, and then 441 9th, just to spend a little bit more time on that. I mean, that's it's a great client there, Cove Property Group. This is an amazing project that they're. Uh, really getting ahead of schedule uh, in some regard as it relates to Hudson Yards. They're really moving ahead. That's, that's part of what I think is attractive probably to, to clients for building repositioning is 
not just cost but speed. Sure. Those go hand in hand, obviously. And that's just a really cool one, like I said, of something new coming out of something old. <clears throat> and the key really was the elevator core. Uh, we gutted the inside of the building. We used uh, shotcrete to actually beef up the existing columns in the pod podium, uh, maybe 120, 130 of those. So, you know, we wrap it in a cage right. of rebar, and basically, like, you're going to put in an in-ground pool, you know, in your backyard. You know, we shot it with concrete, right. smoothed it out, made it look all nice and pretty. We did new um, pits for the elevator and put in a new core, and that's really what, what's driving the whole project. We use that. That core is really kind of the... Uh, the major, the centerpiece of the of the construction schedule, right. and, and there's a new class building. On is top. there an uh, is there an anchor tenant? Yep. It is. Yeah, Peloton is there. This is public knowledge. Peloton is going to be going there. In fact, Lyft, uh, Lyft, I believe, has already started their early fit out work. So that's happening while we're finishing the building up. So there's a lot of coordination that happens there. But it really is going to end up being a, a really beautiful building. It is. It's a nice. It's a, it is really nice looking building. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. So, so you know. When we talk about the workplace, the interior space, we've been talking about the uh, the workplace and the home. Those lines kind of blurring. You know, they're starting to look similar. Yeah. You know, with uh, with collaborative space, with cafeteria, loungy space. Uh, you know, people like to work in different ways than sit in an office all the time. What are some of the similarities between? residential towers and commercial towers what are some of the things you see we talked about like that vertical campus of possibly fitness centers and possibly shared conference space are we seeing similarities between totally i mean the the common areas are you know that's what they have in common pardon the expression um it's the the space to interact with one another i don't know really where that comes from i mean i, I get it from a basic human need because we all do that but I also wonder sometimes if it's a reaction to how insular we've all become with our handheld devices. Or maybe it's just a coincidence. I, I have no idea. But, um, you know, gathering spaces, common areas, even beyond uh, fitness areas. Because sometimes you can just kind of plug in your, and then you're in your own zone. I know when I work out, I just want to be in my own zone. Um, that, that's, that's something that's shared. And I think technology you know, the, the experience to, uh, that, that you have uh, in, your, in your building, whether it's work or home, um, is something that, the, the functionality is definitely different. Right. Um, you know, I don't know that uh, we're getting down to where you can change the temperature in your own office necessarily, mm -hmm. but I, I think what's common is better, more intuitive, more interactive technology. And sometimes that can be touch screens in each room, in each office, whether you're at home or at work, or through software applications that are either purchased by the by the developer, um, or or developed by them as a proprietary thing. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think the way the younger generation is looking to work, uh, the way it's challenged us to uh, rethink how we build things, both from the new construction side to the interior space, has been very interesting. And it does revolve a lot around technology, the mobility of technology, the portability of being able to not having to work always in your office, uh, and the fact that with the, that technology and all the different apps that you're you're never just at the office or just at home. Mm -hmm. You're always in both places, yeah. you know, virtually in both places, whether you're taking care of your your bills through your handheld app, right? And just mm -hmm. we have to go to bank and have a passbook where people would actually type the numbers in it. But now it's like, you know, it's like... <laughs> it's your fingerprint. <laughs> 
I don't remember the last time I saw a teller, you know. Right. But I think it all it's all ties in together. Uh, it's it's really interesting, and I look forward to seeing where it goes. I'm a type of person who actually enjoys the change, even though I may not be as uh, apt at technology as my kids. But um, but I'm learning. I'm trying to learn, and it's uh, it just. It's making the experience, it's making the work experience more interesting, actually, mm-hmm. to, to stay in it for a longer time. So it's really great. So this was a, I think it was a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground, and I'm really excited to see if some of the things we talked about, some which were predictions and some which were, <laughs> which were you know, what we think could happen, uh, and seeing how that evolves over the, the next, you know, few years to decades, and see how this city uh, evolves. So thank you for being here. Thank um, you for having me. And I'm looking forward to uh, putting this together with the other uh, experts that we have in the field as well. So that's it. Thanks. What happens when you combine typical BIM processes with real-world, in-the-field expertise? Tune in next month for an inside look at how one team is leveraging construction technology differently. Thanks for listening to Building Conversations.